Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of Best of the Left Podcast. We have a variety of clips for you today from a variety of sources including on the media, Rachel Maddow, Randy Rhodes, Democracy Now!, YouTube, The Mike Malloy Show, and Cedar on Sundays. administration announced that they are preparing to ask Congress to approve a huge $20 billion arms deal with Saudi Arabia, including the sale of advanced bombs and weaponry to that country. New York, two New York congressmen say they are determined to not let this proposed deal slip under the radar. Democrats Jerry Nadler and Anthony Weiner appeared outside the Saudi consulate in New York yesterday to announce legislation opposing this deal. They say their legislation will be triggered as soon as the White House officially notifies Congress that the deal is being proposed. For more on this plan, we're pleased to have join us now live by phone, Representative Jerry Nadler, Democrat of New York. Congressman, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. For those of us uh, who don't follow arms deals all that closely, how big a deal is this proposed arms deal with Saudi Arabia? Well, it's a major, major deal. It's $20 billion worth of high-tech uh, weaponry to Saudi Arabia. Uh, and they're saying that in order to keep uh, some other countries uh, from thinking that this is uh, against them, we'll also increase arms aid to some of these other countries like Israel and Egypt uh, in order to balance it out. So we're, we're, we're generating uh, uh, an arms race in the Middle East, which is not the most intelligent thing to do. $20 billion uh, is a lot of money. This is $20 billion over 10 years. Mm-hmm. As far as I understand, that's less than the Saudis get in oil revenues in a month. I'm well, surprised that they want this from us, this deal from us. Well, this is part of the president's um, um, thought or plan that since the invasion of Iraq, I mean, he wouldn't put it this way, but the invasion of Iraq removed Iraq as the natural balance of power constraint on Iranian power in the Middle East, which mm. is one of the more stupid things about our invasion of Iraq. But now there is very little constraint on Iranian uh, uh, expansionism or or or, or um, um, energy in the Middle East, and so the president has come up with this idea that let's uh, uh, arm an array of Sunni countries like Egypt and Saudi Arabia to be against Iran, to be a uh, a balance of power against Iran. Uh, I don't think that works. I, I think it's a dangerous thing to do, and I don't think it works, but that's the motive for it. Yeah, and it seems like it's a, I mean, it seems just like the definition of short-sighted in terms of just arming people who are, for the moment, maybe convenient counterweights. But what's going to happen to those advanced weapon systems in the long run in Saudi well, Arabia? That, that, and that, that, what's going to happen with them in Iraq right now? Well, that's exactly right. I mean, first of all, Saudi Arabia, despite the, the delusions of President Bush, is not our friend. Yeah. Saudi Arabia is the leading uh, uh, exporter of, uh, of 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 propaganda to all the the the, the madrasas and the mosques around the, the, the world, saying that uh, if if you're a Muslim uh, cleric, if you're an imam, and you're not preaching violence against Christians and Jews, you're not a true imam. Mm. And they're and they've been doing this for the last 35 years or so. They're the major fount of of anti. Uh, Western terrorism of of the, of the propaganda behind it and 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 the education behind it. Not to mention the fact that fifteen of the nineteen hijackers on nine eleven. Well, were fifteen Saudi of the nineteen yeah. hijackers on nine eleven were Saudi, and the majority of foreigners coming into Iraq to fight Americans are Saudi because they are because they're the center of of, of this whole terrorist terrorist impulse, and they're very allied with the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and other countries and Hamas 
which are not friends. So it, it's very foolish. Even though, and, and they smile at us and say nice things in English, but in Arabic, uh, we're the enemy. Now, that's number one. Number two, we should have learned from supplying all these arms to the Shah what happens when an unstable regime is overthrown and those arms then get, become, uh, go into the arms of the Ayatollahs. Mm. In, in this case, after President Mubarak, we can't guarantee that those arms in Egypt won't become the property of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, which could take over Egypt, God forbid, or, the, or, or, or some even worse group in Saudi Arabia. We should not be... Uh, introducing large amounts of high-tech weapons into the Middle East. It just doesn't make sense at this point. With Israel, I think at its closest point, about 10 miles away from Saudi Arabia, I was surprised that the Israeli government agreed to go along with this deal. They signed off on it this weekend. Did that surprise you? Not really. Uh, the, 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 the government of Israel, um, um, it's very difficult for them not to agree with the proposal of an American administration if the administration very much wants them to agree with it. Mm. Not to mention the fact that they actually get a ton more money out of this deal as well. Yeah, but I think they'd be better off without this deal because um, when someone says, we're going to supply your potential enemy with a lot of high-tech weapons to kill you with, <laughs> but don't worry, we'll supply you with enough weapons uh, so you can fight them back, <laughs> what you're really saying is, God forbid, if there's a war there, it'll be at a higher level of violence and a lot more Saudis and Israelis will be killed. Exactly. That doesn't make sense. Exactly. Uh, Congressman Nadler, what uh, mechanisms are available to Congress to try to stop a deal like this? Well, uh, the law provides that the president must formally notify Congress uh, when, with, of this deal. I presume, since they're still negotiating aspects of it, they'll do it after we come back. We're, we're going to take a month off for our summer recess. We come back after Labor Day. I presume that they'll formally no notify Congress after Labor Day. We then have uh, 30 days to pass the resolution of disapproval, and we will introduce that resolution within a day or two, I imagine, after they, they formally notify us in September. Would that be binding if it passed? If it passes, it's vetoable by the president, and if it passes over the president's veto with a two-thirds vote, then it's binding. Yeah. Do you have a prediction on how much support you're going to get? No, we're just starting this. I, I have no prediction yet. Yeah, I understand. And I understand that you have to go vote right now, so we're going to let you go. But okay. Congressman Nadler, thanks for joining us. Good luck. Thank you. One trillion dollars could buy a lot of bling. One trillion dollars could buy most anything. One trillion dollars buying bullets, buying guns. One trillion dollars in the hands of killers, thugs. On the media, I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. All options are on the table. No option can be taken off the table. Anybody that would suggest that we should take anything like this off the table in order to deter that kind of event in the United States isn't fit to be president of the United States. I said I wouldn't take the option off the table. No, well, you actually on the table. It's a phrase we've been hearing a lot this summer from the president and the presidential candidates. This week, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama had a public spat over whether or not nukes should be on or off the table. And in June, all of the Republican candidates, except Representative 
Representative Ron Paul agreed that using a nuclear bomb against Iran to stop it from developing nuclear bombs must remain a viable option or on the table. But what does that phrase really mean and what are its consequences? James Walsh is a research associate in international security at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He says we should expect to hear much more about the table in the months to come. If WMD was the uh, language phrase of 2003, on the table has to be the foreign policy phrase of this election year. This table has magical properties. Once you're (laughs) on the table, nothing can ever be taken off. So has the rhetoric been noticeably different among the Democratic candidates? Absolutely not. The Democratic side has also endorsed the table. One exception came last week when Senator Barack Obama... He said he would take the use of nuclear weapons off the table in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And he was immediately criticized in a New York Minute by his uh, chief rival, Hillary Clinton. She's trying to paint him as being inexperienced and naive, and she used this as an occasion to say, well, I wouldn't make any statements about the use or non-use of nuclear weapons in a general way. So I understand you can give a concise summary of the rules currently in place for the creation and use of nuclear weapons. Can you really do that? (laughs) We have the system in place, the nuclear nonproliferation regime, and we have a bargain. And part of the bargain is uh, most countries of the world agree not to get nuclear weapons. And the ones that get to keep them for a while, like the U.S., Russia, France, and China, one of the things they promise not to do is go around threatening countries who don't have them. You're really only supposed to use nuclear weapons, according to the International Court of Justice, to deter a nuclear attack from another government. You're saying that in the non-proliferation treaty, there are rules about rhetoric, not just about the use of nuclear weapons? Well, when you threaten nuclear weapons, that is a form of use of nuclear weapons, at least in the nuclear world. If you go around telling a country, if you don't do what I tell you to do, I'm going to nuke you, uh, that's considered crossing the line. (laughs) But you would never guess that from listening to the presidential candidates. Isn't it just part of the training of a politician to keep the deterrent power of nuclear weapons strong by not invoking phrases that take them off the table. U.S. policymakers take things off the table all the time. I think in this case, the question is, are you tough or not? And those who seek to be tough want to keep everything on the table and then try to turn around and say to the others, oh, you're not tough enough, you're inexperienced, when really that has no relationship at all to the real world. If anything, when you go around saying, oh, yeah, I consider using nuclear weapons, that has consequences. Give me an example of the consequences. If I'm Iran and then someone comes out and says, well, you know, the next president of the United States, uh, if it's a Republican, he's promised that he would consider using nuclear weapons against us. We better not make Saddam's mistake. We better go ahead and get them now before the next Republican administration so that we can defend ourselves. I think that's a very strong talking point for a bomb advocate in another country. But is this rhetoric new? I mean, hasn't there been tough talk uh, on this subject pretty much since the Cold War? Uh, The problem is, this is not the Cold War. We live in an age of terror where the whole proposition of nuclear weapons really has to be reconsidered. Earlier in the year, Henry Kissinger, former Secretary of State, uh, former National Security Advisor under President Nixon, you had Max Kampelman, a nuclear negotiator for Ronald Reagan. You have Sam Nunn, who was a Democrat, very hawkish, very conservative on issues of defense and national security. These and uh, others have joined together and wrote a very uh, public op-ed earlier in the year saying, wait a minute, if a terrorist gets nuclear weapons, 
the fact that we have a thousand or two thousand isn't going to deter them. These guys, you know, embraced the nuclear age when they were in office and now say in this new set of circumstances, we need to rethink the whole thing. Ah, those were simpler, happier times, weren't they? (laughs) So in your recent opinion piece, you wrote that keeping all the options on the table, that rhetoric seems to be inevitable from the candidates, but the response from the reporters doesn't have to be inevitable. Are you frustrated by questions unasked? I am, uh, because the presidential candidates get asked this question, and then they intone with that, you know, resonant voice of theirs and say, all options are on the table. Well, it'd be nice if someone said, well, what exactly does that mean? I mean, uh, is poison gas on the table? Is uh, Can you take the family members of alleged terrorists and hold them hostage and begin shooting them one by one until a terrorist gives up? I mean, is there anything that's not on the table? And when you say it's on the table, how are these other countries who hear you saying that, how are they supposed to react? I mean, none of those questions get asked. They just get the 10-second soundbite and uh, move on to the next topic. Wasn't it the president who got the ball rolling on the phrase, you know, everything is on the table? I think on the table will go down with the word uh, strategery is one of the great contributions to uh, the discussion of national security. Uh, You'll remember President Bush, particularly in terms of Iran, was saying he would not take military action off the table. And then, of course, uh, Condoleezza Rice and all the administration officials began to repeat the phrase. And now on the table. I I mean, I would like to see this table. This table must be huge, huge table. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you. James Walsh. Asking Ralph Nader, why hold a three-day conference on corporate power rather than on war? Well, first of all, the corporations are very involved in the war machine. We remember, remember uh, President Eisenhower's statement about the military-industrial complex. He might have called it today the industrial-military complex because the industrial part is now a supreme uh, influence on the uh, U.S. military budget which now is half of the entire federal government's operating budget, and as well as affecting foreign policy. Even uh, Mr. Koppel uh, has written that oil is very much involved in the invasion of Iraq. In fact, he went to say it's mostly about oil in an op-ed in the New York Times, Ted Koppel. So the domination, the uh, uh, corporate sovereignty over our political economy uh, is very much related to our foreign military and economic policy, including GATT and NAFTA, which are architectures of corporate supremacy over civil values and the rights of workers, environment, and consumers. Can you recap from this conference of three days, people coming at corporations, dealing with them in many different ways, what you think are the biggest problems and the most effective strategies for dealing with them? Well, the biggest problem is that the avenues to challenge corporate power, to restrain it, to break it up in in its present concentrated form, 
to take it uh, away from the political arena because corporations are artificial entities. They're not real human beings. They don't vote. They don't die in Iraq. They don't have children. Uh, they are entities that are dominating our politics, our electoral systems, our universities increasingly, uh, dominating almost everything, even moving into areas that were once prohibited by uh, custom in our country, like commercializing uh, childhood. And so this conference really uh, t challenges the corporations at every interface uh, that affects people, taxpayers, consumers, workers, communities, uh, children, health, care, uh, living wage, uh, the varieties of uh, opportunities that people should have that are being denied. Uh, we are uh, in the advanced stages of being a corporate state where, as Franklin Delano Roosevelt warned Congress in 1938, that when government is controlled by private economic power, he called that fascism. And he would consider today's control by private economic power, namely giant corporations, astride the world as an even more advanced form of what he called fascism, control of government by corporate interests. Would you call it fascism? Yeah, the clinical definition is, fa is what, what he was saying. It was obviously colored in uh, different contexts in World War II, but the clinical definition of fascism is when private concentrated economic power uh, takes government away from the people, turns government into a guarantor, a subsidizer, uh, a covering uh, of corporate power. And corporations now have their executives in high government positions. They have 35,000 full-time lobbyists here, like the drug companies uh, getting all kinds of subsidies from Congress. And they have 10,000 political action committees. Now, if you look at the civic side, there's, there's very little of that. Although, as this conference showed, they've achieved an enormous amount, given their small numbers. Uh, I think, basically, if, if you could quantify corporate power and civic power, in Washington, D.C., civic power is probably 1% of corporate power. And yet, look what it has achieved. And, and I think the hope coming out of this conference is not only that we have a lot of solutions that we don't apply in our country, because uh, concentration of power in the hands of the few uh, allows the few to decide for the many, uh, but we have uh, a large amount of unused democratic power, unused civic power, uh, that can be unleashed, organized, to take back our government uh, if people stopped believing that they were powerless, which they are uh, inbred in ever since we entered uh, elementary school. You know the old phrase, you can't fight City Hall. If we want a society where people have the opportunity to fulfill life's possibilities, isn't that to tell you what the priorities are? which is focusing on subordinating the corporate entity to the sovereignty of the American people, as it's as implied in the Constitution, so, so that they are servants, not our masters, so that they have to compete against other models of economic development, like cooperatives, like replacing the HMO insurance companies with full Medicare, like decentralized solar, replacing more and more of Exxon and Peabody Coal and the nuclear 
industry, like a, a, a redefinition of efficiency and productivity as if people mattered, not as if corporations dominate. They actually define our economic terms. And if we defined efficiencies if people mattered, we would have a massive energy efficiency program, uh, which would, of course, reduce the sales of Exxon and Peabody Coal and Commonwealth Edison and all the rest, because we would be using less electricity and less uh, gasoline because we would democratize technology. Instead, we have what Andrew Kimbrough called at the conference, these giant corporations are dictatorships, and they have enormous power without anywhere near the commensurate responsibility. They are highly autocratic uh, dictatorships uh, that prevent constitutional rights from uh, being with workers when they go to the workplace. They lose their constitutional rights when they enter that corporate domain. And because of all this, it is interesting that our political leaders don't like to discuss it. I mean, every politician in this town knows who runs this town. They know who runs the Defense Department, the Department of Interior, Department of Agriculture, Food and Drug Administration. And there are only a tiny handful of politicians who will raise the banner of subordinating corporate power to the sovereignty of the American people. The debates are sterile. The debates are exercises in parallel news conferences repeating ad infinitum the same words and phrases of evasion. They will not confront the corporate crime wave. They will not confront the destruction of our democracy. They will not confront the usurpation of our electoral processes. Even though they could go back to Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson, Teddy Roosevelt, Federal uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and others who have condemned uh, uh, corporate power as a, as a perilous threat to even a modest democratic society. Uh, the new details on Pat Tillman's death. This is the most sickening thing I have heard in forever, okay? You know Pat Tillman was an Arizona Cardinal, and after 9-11, he decided that he would volunteer, and not even as an officer either, but as an enlisted man, he would volunteer to go to Afghanistan to hunt down Osama bin Laden and to, you know, wrap up the whole al-Qaeda terrorist threat. Well, it, it appears that... Uh, you know, Pat Tillman was killed, and we were told it was friendly fire, accidental friendly fire, that kind of thing. It turns out that the medical evidence does not match up with the scenario that we were described. A, those are, that is a quote from a medical report. A doctor who examined Tillman's body after he was killed on the battlefield in Afghanistan in 2004 told investigators, the doctors 
whose names were blacked out, said that the bullet holes were so close together that it appeared that the Army Ranger was cut down by an M16 fired from 10 yards or so away. Here are the key points contained in the documents. 2,300 pages of testimony released to the Associated Press by the Defense Department in response to a Freedom of Information Act request, okay? Because this was a cover-up. In his last words, moments before he was killed, Tillman uh, snapped at a panicky comrade under fire to shut up and stop sniveling. Army attorneys, this is sick, this is the sickest part. Army attorneys sent each other congratulatory emails for keeping criminal investigators at bay as the Army conducted an internal friendly fire investigation that resulted in administrative or non-criminal punishments. The three-star general who kept the truth about Tillman's death from his family and the public told investigators 70 times that he had a bad memory and couldn't recall the details of his own actions. No evidence at all of enemy fire was found at this scene. No one was hit by enemy fire, nor was any government equipment struck. They suspect that Pat Tillman was murdered, fragged, for the military uh, people listening, fragged. They think he was fragged by his own men, and that the White House was very happy to say he was killed in action at first, then to back off and say, oh, well, it was friendly fire when his parents pressed for the truth because his uniform was burned. His diary was burned. It was a very creepy circumstance. Last night, Olbermann broke the story. This awful report tonight, uh, uh, parsing through these documents obtained by the Associated Press that indicate that Army investigators were denied permission to see whether or not Pat Tillman's death in Afghanistan as an Army Ranger was a deliberate fragging, was a case of murder, even though the shots were uh, seemingly so close together in his head that they, they looked to the doctors on the scene that they might have been fired from only 10 yards away. Not only was their access denied here, but the Army lawyers were congratulating themselves in email traffic from keeping this from becoming a criminal investigation. Do you think this case is still uh, wide open? Absolutely, and it should be. The, the evidence of some problems is very, very clear. Uh, Mary Tillman and the Tillman family have been incredibly courageous in pursuing the truth in this, and the truth is not yet out. If there's even a hint that there was something like a homicide or a murder in this case, it should have been fully investigated and proved or disproved. And we don't really know how far up was it the Secretary of Defense's office? Was it the White House? Where did the idea that you shouldn't give any indication of what happened to Tillman, just go ahead and go through with the burial ceremony, give him the silver star, where did that, where was that idea blessed? Yeah, where was it blessed? Hmm, let's see. I'm a commander guy. Yes, sir. But I'm the decider. Where was it blessed? Hmm. I'm a war president. Where was it blessed? Who knows? <laughs> All of these liars, all of these people who do stuff, and, and even the stuff they don't do, they lie to cover up. They use people uh, to their own political ends, and when it doesn't pan out that they pick the right person to use, what do they do? They cover it up, 
and they lie. That is who they are. And when someone shows you who they are, believe them. So why should we believe anything this president says? Why should we believe anything, anything at all that Alberto Gonzalez says or anything at all that anybody in the West Wing says? If you know Scooter Libby's already been adjudicated guilty, 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 guilty for obstruction, for perjury. I mean, this is who they are. It's what they do. Corporations are dictatorships. You have a choice of regulating a dictatorship or getting rid of it. Well, you, you've got to do all these things. So for example, you have to strengthen the traditional tools that have curbed uh, corporate crime, fraud, violence, outrages, uh, bigotry. And these are regulation, uh, adequate opportunity for litigation. Uh, these are antitrust, which has been caricatured, but it, it is a powerful tool if it's adequately uh, applied. You have to give the owners, the mutual fund people, the pension uh, shareholders more power. They are the owners but, of the corporation, but they have no power. Just imagine the violation of capitalist principles. These guys at the top who are paying themselves ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000 an hour in compensation, the CEOs, uh, basically uh, have repudiated the, the cardinal principle of capitalism, which is if you own property, you should control it. And now they have said to their owners, get lost. Don't dare tell us what we're going to pay ourselves. After all, we're only your hired hands. Uh, and, uh, and, so, and so that's a very important uh, uh, front or initiative. We have to ask ourselves, why not more cooperatives? With the Internet, you can develop cooperative purchasing and develop specifications for the kind of cars or the kind of insurance policies uh, people uh, should uh, be able to buy. Uh, we, we need stronger trade unions. Uh, we need trade unions unlike SEIU. We need trade unions like the California Nurses Association, who see themselves as a powerful counter counter uh, countervailing force. Explain that difference. SEIU is if the uh, inheritor of the tradition of company unionism. The basically. service employees. Yeah, the service Union. employees. Andrew Stern. I mean, basically, he spends more, sometimes you think he spends more time with corporate executives than he does with workers. Uh, he's constantly trying to collaborate with corporate executives in ways that weaken the morale, undermine the rights and horizons of workers. And uh, most prominently, the way he signs these full-page ads with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and all the other corporate lobbies saying, Americans should have universal health care. Yeah, more universal health care gouging, more universal health care uh, exploitation, not full Medicare for all.
There are three huge things you can do to help support the show, but they only take a few seconds. Leave us a great customer review in the iTunes Music Store, dig the show on dig.com, and every month you can vote for the best of the left at podcastalley.com. Find links to all three of these most important sites on the right-hand side at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Thanks for your support. I visited Section 60 of Arlington National Cemetery, where American soldiers were freshly interred. To date, 3,615 U.S. troops have been killed while serving in Iraq. Afterwards, I headed across the street to the Sheraton National Hotel, owned by right-wing Korean cult leader Sun Young Moon, to meet some of the war in Iraq's most fervent supporters at the College Republican National Convention. Sometimes you have to think about what this war is in context of, you know, greater wars like World War II. I mean, it, it makes you wonder whether the American people could even stomach something like going through another World War II. We are all supportive of the war. We all believe that it's very important to win the war and to fight al-Qaeda in Iraq so that we're not fighting them here in the United States. Not even just al-Qaeda, the Islamic fascism is I like the Republican standpoint, fight them over there, not over here. Yeah. I think that's what we're doing right now, and we should keep doing it. Um, basically, I think what people don't understand is if it's not fought in Iraq, if we don't win over there, it's going to happen here. I think, frankly, we went there because al-Qaeda was already there. They may not have the force they have now, but they were there. Um, and essentially, if we leave there, we give them a stronghold. But while these college Republicans supported the war in Iraq with all their hearts, they seemed reluctant to participate in it. Why are you not fighting them over there? Why am I not fighting yeah. them over there? Because I'm in college right now. Do you plan to enlist? I haven't ruled it out. Are you going to serve? I've thought about it. thinking about it. Undecided. Undecided. Why aren't you serving just currently? Well, I'm an undergraduate right now, and I just had a scholarship for Global Bright Futures, and I just I didn't have any real, I just didn't have any strong urge. Why am I not serving? Yeah. I don't know. I mean... I would really, I really support this country strongly, and I'm, you know, I didn't enlist. I mean, I, there's not much else I can say. I don't think you can't talk about this issue if, if you're not serving. What might not convince me not to join is if somehow I become like a really good like speaker and stuff like that. That's what would convince me not to join. Yeah. The thing that would convince me to join is if like something even bigger happened. If you support the war, why are you not serving in the military? <laughs> For some reason, the college Republicans I met had a curiously high level of health problems. Um, I have asthma, so it's kind of hard thing um, to get in if you have health conditions like that. You were in R ROTC. Are you That's planning correct. to serve? Uh, I unfortunately cannot because of medical reasons. So you support the the war and the war. are you are you planning on enlisting? Um, no, I'm thinking about the reserves. I applied to the Air Force Academy, but I got rejected for medical reasons. Are you personally planning on enlisting? Um, I, unfortunately, I can't do a, a medical reason. Um, I had a, an injury, and, and uh, I'm sure there's a couple others, but um, if I could, I would. What are my list? Oh, I actually tried. I have knee problems. You have knee problems? 
I was a catcher for years in baseball. I'm more career oriented, I guess, than actually serve. Yeah, yeah. So you're kind of like a Cheney Republican, like you have better things to do. I don't think it's for me. Yeah. Because, I mean... Right, everyone has their role. Yeah. And I mean, I was a football player and all that kind of stuff, but then I'll know if at the same time if I can handle some of the, the training that they go through and some of the intense stuff they have to do. So, Even with a daunting challenge in Iraq, the college Republicans remained resolute about winning the culture war at home. It, it doesn't affect you. I contend it affects you in immigration. If we had those 40, billion, uh, 40 million children that were killed over the last 30 years, we wouldn't need the illegal immigrants to fill the jobs that they are doing today. Think about it. I don't mind gays having regular privileges because they're citizens and all, but they should not receive special privileges from above everyone else. Right, right. That's not what we're made for. God didn't create, I think what God didn't create us to forget. So it's Adam and Eve and not Adam and Steve. Right. Oh. Everyone's. How awesome is that? Did not just say that? You did not just say that. Oh my goodness. A lot of people say that. Everybody is, oh, has, at one time in their life has had inclination towards the other, towards the same sex. But just because you have inclination does not mean you're gay. Because if you have inclination, because you're curious and stuff like that, but if you accept it yeah. and you then you just suppress your feelings and you pray about it to God and you know that you're not, you're so much stronger than somebody have you people. Have you accepted it? Yes, I have accepted it. I've prayed about it to God and I know for a fact that I am not gay. Congratulations. On a personal level, I've had the opportunity to greet the President as he stepped off Air Force One. I've had the ability uh, to meet the First Lady and almost every single member of our cabinet, uh, which is unbelievable for somebody at the age of 23 years old. Though the college Republicans weren't willing to engage the evildoers over there, they were eager to battle them over here. You have the energy, you have the wherewithal, and you are really on the battlefield yourself in your own campuses. It sounds like it's yeah. almost like a war on campus. It is. Honestly, like the Republicans on college campuses are a lot more active than the Democrats, so like right. it kind of counteracts the numbers. It's kind of like a war, and you guys are like better trained. And we have the better troops, exactly. It's really? like the U.S. sending in like special forces against a huge Iraqi army. And stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but before I could go on, I was identified as a member of the liberal media. Can't have you filming Tom DeLay, so you just walk out here with me. I'm just asking to follow me right now. Without explanation, we were sequestered into a corner and forbidden from filming. Please come with us. Or please come with us. I mean, we're obviously not going to force you out physically, but we please leave. Can I step over here? Am I allowed to step over here? Can I step over here? Sorry. I'm doing interpretive dance. Excuse <laughs> me. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm doing interpretive Who's dance. Going? Please don't touch me. You're being a disturbance. Don't touch me. Is this is this how Republicans handle their problems with violence? Is this how they handle their problems with violence? Is this is this how college Republicans handle their problems? I went home and missed the festivities planned for that evening. From what I heard. The liquor flowed and the college Republicans partied through the night. The following day, three American soldiers were killed while serving in Iraq.
little good news out of Congress today. Today, the House of Representatives passed legislation that I think is really important. Legislation that would extend a ban on permanent U.S. military bases in Iraq. The bill would also bar U.S. control over Iraqi oil resources. This passed the House by an overwhelming majority. The vote was 399 to 24. I'm honored to welcome to the program the author of this bill, California Congresswoman Barbara Lee. Congresswoman Lee, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, good to be with you. Thank I, you very much. I, um, I, I hope you will forgive me, but we have a fake crowd on our sound effects machine that wants to congratulate you. <laughs> <laughs> this is, okay, that sounds great. Yes, exactly. I can, I, we can send heavy lifting, heavy lifting. It would be fun to be able to carry that around with you for a little affirmation whenever you needed it. Thank you. Um, you, you first introduced this legislation back in June 2005, and I feel like I have been talking about it ever since then. Why did, why did you write this legislation, and why do you think it passed now? Well, I tell you, I wrote it because I knew then, as I know now, and finally the House of Representatives uh, understood what we knew back then is that is we have to send a strong message a clear signal that we do not want to permanently occupy uh, Iraq by keeping the permanent military presence with permanent military bases in Iraq and that we have no dips on the oil this is a clear policy statement that we sent today on a bipartisan basis to the president and he needs to listen this is the American people uh, have said this over and over and over again. The Iraq Study Group, this was one of their recommendations. And those of us who have been against this uh, occupation from Jump Street knew this uh, many, many years ago, that we had to start somewhere. And I tell you, today uh, with this vote, I think the president and the White House need to come clean. They need to state very clearly that they do not intend to have a permanent military presence in Iraq. One of the issues is that ambiguity that we've had really conflicting statements from even just within the administration with George Bush saying that if there is going to be a, a, a permanent military presence or a long-term military presence of the United States in Iraq, it's up to the Iraqis to decide. Defense Secretary Bob Gates instead saying, no, 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 it would be us that would decide how long that we're going to stay there. There's been so much ambiguity from the administration. Do you feel like they do have a clear position in favor of permanence, or do you feel like they're muddled about it? Well, it's totally confused. Secretary Gates stated in his testimony in February that they have no desire for permanent bases in Iraq. Then a, a month or so ago, uh, Tony Snow, the president's press person, said, well, we intend to have a uh, presence such as we've had in South Korea, and that's been, of course, 50 years. So part of what I'm trying to do is get them to be clear to stop confusing the American people, and also, more importantly, to say very clearly that we do not have intentions uh, on the oil or permanent military bases. Because, you know, it's very important, because our young men and women are in harm's way. Uh, 75% of the Iraqi people uh, think that we are going to permanently occupy their country, and they do not want us to do that. This is fueling the insurgency, and this I hope that the president says this clearly that he understands that he could help reduce the tensions and the violence and as we move forward of course our plan is to in september submit when he comes up with his supplemental uh, proposal to fully fund redeployment uh and to protect our troops as he does that with the money that he comes up with I interviewed um, Governor Howard Dean, chairman of the Democratic Party, yesterday on this show. I was lucky to get him. He's really hard to get on the show. But uh, one of the things that uh, he and I really disagreed about was this idea of, of the idea of a fully funded withdrawal. He kept saying, you know, I don't think that Democrats should be pushing for a, a very quick end to the war. I don't think we should be funding for I don't think we should be pushing for cutting off funding for the war because that would leave our troops high and dry and we'd never be able to get them out safely. I feel like this idea of fully funding a withdrawal 
um, really nips those criticisms in the bud, whether they come from Republicans or Democrats. Well, I'm glad you told me that. I'm Carl Howard. And Thank you. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. We are not talking about cutting the funding, and that's the, the sad part about the confusion that's out there. What I'm talking about is fencing in the money. If the president comes up with $100 billion, we say, we'll give you this $100 billion, not to wage war, but to protect our troops and begin the redeployment. We passed two weeks ago a clear timeline. Uh, within 120 days, we expect the president to begin withdrawal, by, and by uh, April 2008, it should be completed. Hmm. And so we can use the funding for that purpose. I just think there's mass confusion. You know, the the right wing and the Bush administration want people to believe that there's some of us who want to cut the funding from our troops. Come on, I don't think there's one member of Congress who, who would put our troops in harm's way and want to cut the funding and leave them there vulnerable. We're saying protect them with this money and begin to bring them home. And many military personnel say over and over and over again, the best way you protect the troops is to bring them home. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, I have a vote right now that I have to cast. Okay. Barbara Lee, <laughs> lots, of, lots of other stuff to ask you So about, so I hope you'll just come back to the show when you can. Well, thank you so much uh, for uh, calling me today. And, I appreciate your voice. Thank you. Congratulations on today's book. Thanks. This show is produced with the help of the members of the Best of the Left community. You too can be a part of the show and we would love your help. You can submit information about great clips you've heard, volunteer to help edit these clips for the show, or actually become an occasional guest producer. For more information, please visit the community at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. They've got a mount, an assault on the uh, WTO and NAFTA. WTO and NAFTA are basically an albatross around the neck of workers, of consumers, and of uh, clean environments to begin with. They, uh, they are an end run around our courts and regulatory agencies. We couldn't have gotten airbags uh, under WTO because that would have been considered a unilateral move under this global trade agreement uh, and a non-tariff trade barrier. It would be considered too high a standard uh, imposed on importing cars, even though it's the same standard on domestically produced cars. Uh, what WTO does, it prevents us from being first in the world. Uh, it pulls down our standards so our workers have to compete with brutalized child labor in third world countries. It makes us Im impossible uh, to prohibit the importation of products from child labor. That's a violation of WTO, even though you can't buy a product here in the U.S. made from uh, child labor in the U.S. It is the greatest loss of sovereignty, local, state, and national, in American history. And it's an autocratic system with secret courts and secret equivalency procedures. I mean, it's just a total contradiction and subversion of our democratic uh, society. So that's the first thing has to be done to invoke the six-month notice of withdrawal and renegotiate pull-up trade agreements where we pull up the rest of the world and, and our standards instead of pull-down uh, trade agreements that subordinate health and safety 
to trade agreements. That's the first time that's ever been done. Uh, trade usually stuck to trade, trade agreements. Now uh, they've become very imperialist and they subordinate uh, health and safety, consumer, environmental, and uh, worker rights. The second thing that has to be done is something no Democratic politician will ever utter, except maybe for Dennis Kucinich. Not one Democratic politician will say, we should repeal the notorious anti-worker Taft-Hartley law of 1947. Explain what it is. Which basically uh, obstructs the organization of unions, which transfers control of union pension funds to management with all these trillions of dollars. Imagine the power that, can, that workers could have. Uh, they would own a third of the New York Stock Exchange. They would be able to put real muscle in investor ownership, and it prevents workers from helping one another, called secondary boycotts, among many other notorious provisions. I wanted to ask you about the secret trade deals that are being made behind closed doors between the Democrats and the White House that reports say are being the language being drafted by the White House. Rick MacArthur, publisher of Harper's, uh, said on Democracy Now! that uh, Congressman Rangel, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi are saying, we're gearing up for the 2008 election. We've got to raise a lot of money. They're closer to the Clinton wing of the party, which is the pro-so-called free trade wing of the party, the pro-NAFTA, pro-permanent normal trade relations with China part of the party. And this is a way of saying to the corporate community, Wall Street, Walmart, we're open for business. We want to raise money from you in order to compete for campaign money, the logic goes, the Democrats have to cater to big corporate donors. The corporate Democrats in action again. Why should we all be surprised? When you ask uh, Democrats in Congress, how are you doing against the Republicans in the coming election? The first answer is about money. It's not about justice. It's not about agenda. It's not about mobilizing people. It's about dialing for corporate dollars. These two parties have sold the U.S. government and the American people to the highest bidders. And, and, and that's why we have a corporate sovereign political economy, and that's why workers are daily in peril of losing their economic security and their pensions and retirement or their jobs or their health and safety uh, in the workplace. Uh, you know, we, we have to pay attention, Amy, to something uh, very important, and that is the language. Uh, we are in the process of seeing the corporatization of our highways, the corporatization of our water systems, and still people on our side use the word privatization. They use the word white-collar crime instead of using the word corporate crime. They use the word private sector instead of corporate sector. We have to stop using the words of the opponents, because they control the language. Uh, Democrats should use the words corporate welfare more often. They should talk about cracking down on corporate crime, fraud, and abuse that are ripping off Medicare and Medicaid and the U.S. taxpayer across the board. But you can say that ad infinitum, but they're not going to do it as long as they view their electoral processes in terms of dollar signs.
The decision to interfere as deeply as they did into the uh, office of the Surgeon General, uh, and the former Surgeon General now, Richard uh, uh, Carmona, Dr. Richard Carmona, is astonishing. Um, what they did is try to turn Dr. Carmona into a propagandist. And when he refused to go along, uh, the Bush crime family stopped him from speaking at all on a host of essential health issues. Now, this is coming out in the testimony. A lot of people say, well, good for him. No, to hell with Carmona. Why didn't he say something while this was going on and resign and, and let the American public know how even the office of the Surgeon General was being tampered with? Huh? Carmona told a House committee the other day that the Bush crime family would not allow him to speak on the science and the medical aspects of stem cell research, emergency contraception, the so-called morning-after uh, pill, comprehensive sex education. What happens to, to prisoners once they go into our, our, our uh, criminal uh, industrial complex? Mental health issues. Carmona said... One of his reports on global health issues was stomped on, ripped up, because he refused to insert glowing references to the efforts of the Bush crime family. His report on prisoners' health care was held up for fear it would lead to demands for costly reforms. Screw them, they're prisoners! Let them rot! Unbelievable. Now, th th that's bad enough. You want to you hear it get worse? Carmona was told to insert Bush's name at least three times on every page of his speeches. Jesus God! This sounds like Ceausescu in Romania before they took him and his wife out in the street and put bullets in them. Carmona was also told to make political speeches on behalf of Republican candidates. And then this, he was told not to speak to a group affiliated with the Special Olympics because of that charity's longtime association with the Kennedy family. Son of a bitch. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I, you know, really, really, really try not to cuss on the program, but this is just absolutely vile, disgusting, contemptible. But uh, Bush's nominee, his new one, eh? his new one told a Senate committee yesterday that he would resign if he were asked to put politics over science. Huh? Yeah, we've heard this before, right, from Gonzalez. What did uh, uh, Alberto Gonzalez say during his confirmation hearings? Huh? Oh, I'm against torture. What about Sammy the Fish Alito uh, during his hearings to be on the Supreme Court? Oh, I, you know, I believe in case law or, or long-established uh, Supreme Court decisions. Uh, what did John Roberts, the quiet man, say? No, not me. I've never... Bomb, bomb, bomb. We've heard this before. So now the newest thug, would-be thug in the Bush crime family, Dr. James Holsinger testified at his confirmation hearing yesterday that he would support bans on the advertising of prescription drugs and sugary children's cereals. Oh, really? You know that's a filthy lie. Who? Show me a Republican. Show me a member of the Bush crime family who would support a ban on the advertising of anything. 
prescription drugs. Oh, stop it, Holsinger. The entire Bush crime family is partially underwritten by pharmaceutical companies. Stop it. And sugary children's cereals? Oh, well, that's that's a, that's a real winner there. Yeah. Oh, we've been talking about that for, what, 35 years? He also says that uh, high school students should be told that condoms are an appropriate form of birth control. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what he told the committee. Can you see this guy? This is a Bush appointee or nominee. Can you see him getting the word out? Can you see Flip Benham's organization and focus on the family and focus on your mama and focus on your daddy's penis and all these other crazed right-wing operations saying, What? He's going to promote condom use. Oh, no, he's not. Uh. Oh, he also said he was not anti-gay. <laughs> no, of course you're not. Of course you're not. He said in his testimony, I can only say that I have a deep appreciation for the essential human dignity of all people, regardless of background or sexual orientation, you know, except the queers. Should I be confirmed to Surgeon General, I pledge to you to continue that commitment. You know, except to the queers. Oh, oh. Bastards. Well, again and again, it says here in the New York Times, again and again, senators asked Dr. Holsinger whether he could stand up to the kind of political pressure that Richard Carmona got. Indeed, Senator Kennedy was chairman of the Health Committee, began the hearing by announcing that he would soon introduce legislation to insulate the Surgeon General's office from political meddling. Can you believe that? We have to have laws for this now. Hey guys, I just wanted to take a second to mention a few cool new features that we're launching on the website. If you go to bestofleftpodcast.com from the homepage, um, in the menu bar there, you'll see a new link called Submit and Rate Clips. If you click on that link, it's going to take you to a brand new page where you can now uh, submit your clip. Basically, it's just a simple web form. You just fill out a few bits of information about your clip and hit upload, and it uploads your clip directly to our website. Um, we're also launching a new feature that we're calling uh, the clip rating system it's kind of an experimental thing um, basically it lets you uh, listen to and rate clips before they get turned into a show so if you any clips that are uh, submitted to us with this new form they're going to automatically go into this clip rating system now the clip rating system is not going to be uh, something that everyone's probably going to want to participate in, but if it sounds like something that you want to try, you know, it's going to give you more of a, a voice um, as to what actually goes into this show. Because what we're going to do is we're going to take the highest rated clips and use those for future episodes of Best of the Left podcast. So, we're launching uh, these two new features of the website. They're both kind of in beta, so they could be a little bit buggy, but 
Um, if you're interested, please, please check it out. And uh, that's going to be it for this episode of Best of Left Podcast. Thanks for listening. And I should be back um, next week with another show for you guys. So, um, yeah, that's it. Take care. Peace. Black and white, you took apart a picture that wasn't right.